You've been looking pretty good these last few weeks, man. Yeah, I got a, a secret stash of the stuff in the mail. Oh, yeah. Oh, you got the Caldera Lab stuff too, huh? I did get it. Dude, this is some great stuff, man. It's a three product regimen. Um, you can go to their website and check the, uh, the third party results yourself. You don't have to believe Ray or I, but we've both been using it. It's great stuff. The three product regimen of the good, the base layer, and the clean slate. People who have used it are experiencing smoother and healthier looking skin. It's really great stuff. Go over to calderalab.com and use promo code DELUXE for 20% off. This is a great deal, Ray. Yeah. Look good, feel good, live good. That's what I always say. Absolutely. Calderalab.com. Use promo code DELUXE for 20% off of your entire order. This podcast is part of the Deluxe Edition Network. To find other great shows on the network, head over to deluxeeditionnetwork.com. That's deluxeeditionnetwork.com. Welcome to another episode of Deluxe Edition. I am your host, Casey Shearer. Joining me, as always, the artist formerly known as Lester Rhubarb, L. Ray Sexton. What's going on, Casey? Not too much, buddy. How are you? Having a great day today. <laughs> we have to, at one point, think of something different to say and act. No, like- no, <laughs> no. We don't. We don't have to change a goddamn thing. Ray and I have just been talking for the last two hours, and then we always pretend like we've just seen each other for the first time at the intro. Yeah, you know, it's a it's a fun little shtick thing we do. It's fun. It's fun. And maybe I'll cut this out. Maybe nobody even needs to know about this. Tell everyone who we talked to today, Ray. We talked to Tommy. And he made, uh, Tommy made one of those movies about some slasher thing, but ah, it slips my mind because we got to talk to him about so much other stuff. It was so awesome. Yeah, we talked to uh, Tommy McLaughlin. A lot of people will know him as the writer and director of Friday the 13th Part 6. It's one of the fan favorites of uh, the series. But uh, we talked to him about everything but Friday the 13th, Part 6. We did talk about a little bit of uh, the other Friday the 13th things that he's working on. Uh, but there's so much other good stuff that he has done. And a lot of this stuff that we talked about on the episode, you can find on Tubi. And I'll, I'll try to put as many of the links as I can find into the, the show notes. Before we get into the episode with Tommy, let's just do a quick house cleaning here, Ray. 
We are a part of the Deluxe Edition Network over at deluxeeditionnetwork.com. You can find the podcasts of the month over there, Horsing Around and The Real Drunks. And Horsing Around is a great show. They talk about a lot of different topics, uh, conspiracy stuff. And The Real Drunks, uh, friend Maddie Marlowe and his friends out in California, they usually will play a movie uh, in the background and then talk about it as the movie is playing. So check them out, deluxeeditionnetwork.com. You can find all of our previous shows over at deluxeedition.show. And let's see, you can find Ray taking care of the Instagram duties over on Deluxe Edition Pod. A lot of stuff going on over there. Check it out daily. And if you'd like to support the show, you could go to patreon.com slash deluxe edition pod. Sign up over there and you can get the show unedited immediately after it's recorded. Or you could buy a t-shirt over at whatamaneuver.net slash collections slash deluxe dash edition. And those are the official shirts. If you'd like a bootleg, Ray's going to tell you where you can get that right now. That's right. I'm looking into getting more bootleg merchandise for the deluxe edition going over at uh, T Public, where if you look up 10 Cent Beer Night Podcast, you can get bootleg shit of deluxe edition. You can get tank tops. You can get mugs. Fuck, you can get a notebook. You could get a notebook and then you can write like notes about our show. Like, I love this episode on March, whatever. Uh, it was one of my favorites. And you could write down the all kinds of shit in that notebook. And on the front, it'll say deluxe edition with the logo. Yeah. Or maybe it'll have another bootleg logo that I'm working on. Casey doesn't know what the fuck I do over there. I, I have no idea what Ray is working on. He keeps it very secretive. But yeah, definitely check our T public site or check Ray's T public site out. I think I'm going to be starting one as well for the deluxe edition. We'll have an uh, official official bootleg merchandise. Yeah. yeah, we need some official T public stuff because uh, you know I don't even know where my money goes when I sell this shit. This thing's so bootleg, even I don't get the money. <laughs> Go check it out. Uh, we're having a lot of fun over here on Deluxe Edition. Please tell your friends. Rank us, rate us, leave reviews anywhere that you can do so. Spotify, Good Pods, uh, Apple Pods. Come on YouTube. Leave some comments. Yep. Tell your friends. It's the only way we're going to grow this thing. Yeah. And if you're on Instagram, share our post with everyone. You know, you can steal them. But that logo is still on there, my friend. So feel free to steal them, crop that shit, and run it right back out because this still says Deluxe Edition on it. So totally happy with that. Go ahead. Yeah, share away. All right, Ray, I think that's it. Yep. So let's get into our chat with Tommy McLaughlin. So okay. you mentioned the, the singing. So let's just talk about that right away. Are you, uh, are you still doing the, the band stuff, the sloths? You see all the sweat? Yeah. <laughs> I just came back from the gym because I'm in the Rocky training because this upcoming Saturday night, I'm going to be in France doing a full 45-minute set with my concept that I've had for many, many, many years called Horror Rocks. 
And basically, it's songs from horror movies from the beginning in the 50s all the way modern day. And unfortunately, due to COVID, the sloths kind of are no more. They went back to the grave where they started. Uh, so I started just looking for other bands and other things that I've always wanted to do. And um, this was a hard thing to put together uh, because, you know, I, I wanted to do it for horror conventions and stuff. And then I got a call about um, doing this festival uh, in France that's called the Bloody Weekend. And I brought this up and they went, oh, yeah, we could get a few French musicians, you know, rock, rock and heavy metal guys. So we figured out songs that we want to do. And <laughs> I, you know, I'm working on them here. They're working on them there. And it's going to be like, we'll see what happens. You get out there right. and, and I literally have not sang, you know, like a 45 minute set in three years, which was when, you know, COVID, you know, shut us all down. Uh, yeah. And uh, 2019 was the last set we did. So I am trying to like, you know, <laughs> get myself ready for this. Cause I, I don't stop once I, you know, start with this performing thing, I'm all over the stage and doing all kinds of crazy shit. And then as I said, these are songs that are all, Things I haven't really done live, you know. Kind of like, yeah. what, to. what what songs are we talking about here from like the fifties and sixties? Uh, like we're movie? talking we're talking about uh, Pet Cemetery. We're talking about uh, Highway to Hell. We're talking about the Man Behind the Mask from somebody's film. Um, talking about God, what else is in that? Uh, Teenage Frankenstein. We're also going to do from the film and. Um, uh, People are strange from Lost Boys, so it's all that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, my big broad thing is fifties all the way through. This for this crowd, we're going a little more metal, you know, no, types of stuff. I, I think that's a great idea. <laughs> I, oh, yeah. you know, I thought so too. But you know, the hard thing is just getting them to want to pay, you know, to fly four to five musicians out, um, you know, to do these things. And uh, but I think once we get a reputation, it'll be a much easier, you know, to, to be recommended. So the band that you're meeting, you're uh, that you're going to France to play with, you haven't met them in person yet? Nope. And they're all from different bands. Uh, the drummer, I guess, is fairly well known. Uh, he's got a band that's, I don't know, I have four or five albums called. <laughs> uh, it's a, it's, it's a, great uh name uh that is and i just went right out of my head it's like something vomit uh <laughs> something, god i i'm blanking right now uh but it's like you know i heard it, i went okay that, that's always going to be interesting other guys i'm not sure what bands there are but no there has not been a single word exchanged uh and if i did it would be, have to be in french so i need a you know translator Oh wow! So you you haven't even practiced together like over Zoom or anything like that, like anything. You can't, you can't. I mean, that was my hope, but because of the distance, you know, yeah. it's, it's there's going to be a lag, so we can't oh, really sure. be in sync. They can record, send me the recording. I can sing, you know, to that and send it back. It's probably about the best we're going to do. Wow! Damn, man, that's that's going to be interesting. Are you excited? Are you excited for that? Or I'm yeah. I mean, it's like I'm very excited because I love performing. I love getting out there in front of people and get well, not even in front of them, like off the stage in with the people. Um, there's just something about breaking that fourth wall and really getting everybody, you know, into it. I mean, like we're gonna do uh, 
you know, we're not going to take it. Uh, so <laughs> with all the rioting and shit going on over there right now, it should push a button, I would think. Maybe not. I don't know. These are the horror people, so I don't know if they think the same as those people out on the streets out there now. But um, I don't know. I've always been one of those assholes that jumps off the diving board and doesn't bother to look if there's even a sponge down there. You know, I'm just trusting there will be. So, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm hoping it, it doesn't crash and burn. I hope something, you know, comes out of it that's going to be fun for the crowd. Um, and I'm going to you know, say to do my best to prep. And get, yeah. get, you know, get my shit together here. Is it so? Is it for? A, is it for like a, a horror convention? Is it going to be at a convention? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a, a fairly well known. Well, it's a festival more than a convention. Uh, from what they tell me, it's like don't bring a lot of merch. The French don't buy merch. You know, <laughs> they, it, it's like if you got some pictures and stuff. You know the. I mean, a very, very low minimum is all they're going to pay. It's not like the enormous exorbitant prices that you know people are charging fans, you know, here for yeah. autographs and pictures and stuff. And, and and I've always felt guilty, regardless about signing things and getting paid for it. It just feels like, you know, this is like a, a joy to you know, meet the people and, and things. But there's a lot of people that that's their whole livelihood. So you can't go in there and give shit away when they're going, hey, you know, now they're, they're getting mad at me because I'm charging. So if yeah. I do these things, I just kind of find, all right, what's the, you know, what's the lowest going price? And, you know, because there's a lot of people I would not try to aspire to their <laughs> their cost on things. It just, I just, I don't have enough uh, confidence or <laughs> ego to say, no, I'm worth that. You could go out in the parking lot and just sign whatever the fuck you want and say, fuck everybody else. Not charge anything. You, you probably could. I, you know, uh, you wouldn't have a table. Uh, you, you're selling shit out there. You know who did that? I, we, I went to, um, I guess it was a Monster Palooza, and uh, which was here in Burbank, and Robert Blake was out in front of it signing shit. I don't know if he was getting money, but it was right after he got off, and I kind of went, well, <laughs> it's sad. I mean. Th- it was such a star at one point. And of course, yeah. you know, he got himself into a whole lot of trouble, but um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's like, there's been some that I've gone to and if people catch me, you know, like in the hallways and the elevator, they had like some party at a water park that was inside the, the hotel. And yeah, I was, I was signing stuff for free then because it wasn't, you didn't have everybody else around, you know, they just, yeah. you know, came up and asked. So, I mean, but I, I just find that for me, I, I love just doing it. And at the same time, you know, if you're not working, it certainly helps, you know, pay a little bit of the monthly bills. But um, yeah. yeah, for this, it's uh, it's more of a festival. They're going to run my One Dark Night, Friday the 13th, and sometimes they come back and doing Q&A. And um, I don't know what else they got up their sleeve. They've had a lot of people. This has been going on, I think, 14 years so this is a wow. you know ongoing thing, and they've had a lot of really cool people. Why they got me, I have no idea. But you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to go back to France. You're an interesting man. That's why. So you mentioned yeah. a, a few things that I wanted to talk about there. So let, let's talk about 
the convention stuff, one of the guys that made a lot of money at conventions was somebody that you worked with on One Dark Night, Adam West. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what was it like working with him? And um, maybe tell us a little bit because uh, you studied EST, and that that kind of led to the writing of One Dark Night. Then, right? Well, technically, it wasn't EST. That was the uh, that was sort of the big kind of offshoot of things that Scientology teaches. And they started these these seminars, I guess, and, and classes. I, I Since I didn't do it, I really can't comment on it. But what I did do was something uh, that was called Playground, which was an offshoot of that. And anybody that gets into this stuff, you know, it's obviously money and they come up with some sort of amount to teach you these things that are basically, you know, mind science things. Before that, you know, I was doing something with a bunch of, uh, of us from the LA Mind Company and other friends uh, that was called Cybiotics. And that's just, again, the science of the mind, um, you know, lowering your brainwave activity to, you know, alpha or theta and close your eyes and you're able to do things that are in the psychic realm. And everybody goes, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, bullshit. And I'm telling you, my hand to God, that's where it came from. All the Friday the 13th, I'm sorry, all the One Dark Night stuff was that ability to sit there and, you know, spin a toothpick one direction in a cup of water and then the other direction. And they have somebody give you something like a watch or a ring or whatever. And you just think you're just making up stuff. You know, I see a woman, uh, gray, no, brown hair gray on the bottom and you start describing this person and you open your eyes and this other person is like i can't believe that you just described my mother you know are you kidding i mean so yes my mother's watch so i mean i don't know (laughs) all i'm saying is i you know we did a lot of stuff that we were quite amazed we had the ability to do and these are truck drivers and you know housewives and all that and at the end of this week of these classes and stuff, you know, we all got up and performed anything we've ever wanted to do. You know, you suddenly have the confidence to get up there in front of people, which is sort of the like, graduating class that, you know, that, that's the, the last thing you get to do is go up and do something you wa- always wanted to do. So it, it had a lot of effect, but there's a strange thing with us human beings that after you accomplish something, you go, what do I do with it? Am I going to get, you know, make money on this or whatever? You know, we're such a capitalistic world it's like yeah it's cool it's neat i can do that i can do a headstand what am i going to do with it you know <laughs> so i it, it literally fell into that category for us and yet i found this whole thing really fascinating with energy and stuff which is where you know kind of came up with that premise of the uh, you know psychic vampire which is something that was in one of the books in i guess rush behind the curtain you know what the experiments and psychic phenomena uh, with going on in, in Russia uh, since the Second World War. And there was that talk about people that you get around and after they walk away, you're like, oh, my God, I'm just so, you know, it's like they suck all the energy out of you. Yeah. They're yeah, just like they have something, you know, because we're all energy. Let's face it. I mean, that's what all this is about. Whatever you can do up here to get more energy and to keep going. And, you know, when that starts the Wayne, it's like, I got to eat something, got to do, you know, got to rest more or whatever. And there was something about that thing of draining energy that I thought, well, that could be an interesting character. Um, And he does it so that he has more power to do these 
levitations and these different things that require, you know, a little more of that, you know, psi power, you know. Um, so that, again, that's what that was based on. So what was it like working with Adam West during that? Uh, oh, yeah. we thought about Adam West. He didn't, we never talked about any of this stuff. About him. No, Adam, the first thing was that, you know, I was looking for somebody to play the husband of Raymar's uh, daughter. And she was going to be a little on the strange side, you know, sweet, but sort of been freaked out her whole life, not understanding what it is that she has that, she doesn't understand. And then of course it comes to a realization when she realizes who her father is, but Adam's character was supposed to just kind of be the, you know, lawyer that was skeptical about everything. Um, and, you know, he just kind of had a dry sense of humor and, and yet not particularly a likable kind of guy. So we, I saw a whole bunch of people and then the casting director said, what about Adam West? And I went, Adam West, you talking about Batman? It's like, yeah. It's a, I didn't even know he was still around. And she goes, yeah, nobody will hire him. And I said, what do you mean nobody will hire him? They go, yeah, because he's Batman. He's been so typecast, they won't hire him. And, of course, I got on my high horse and went, fuck that, hire him. You're not going to audit? No, hire him. I've got to give this man a job. This is fucking Batman. He should, you know. (laughs) So, of course, what happened first day on the set, you know, Tom, I was thinking that maybe if I start the line up here and then come down here, it could be more interesting as I've done with so many parts, you know, and it's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> That's why they weren't hiring him because he was doing Batman. So I had to flatten all that out and he got it. He was really nice about it. He joked a few times about that. You know, you sure you don't want Batman? No, 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 no. <laughs> and so we got along wonderfully. He had a great sense of humor. And uh, so the whole film was was bare of all that once the movie was over and these these producers took over the film from the production company they decided they were going to add a scene at the opening and one other place and they brought him and the olivia character in to you know add voice and (laughs) since i wasn't there that in the movie we have in a couple of scenes that yeah, Olivia, what do you think you're doing? You can't go out as much too late. You know, and so even at <laughs> best efforts, you know, it's still I, got in there. I just watched but, you know, it last it, night and you can well, you, you can definitely I just watched it last night and you can definitely tell that I know exactly the scene where you're talking about where where it's dubbed over where where he came, must have come out and, and done that uh the dubbing. But you know, it's kind of what's going on with um What's his name that just did uh, Elvis? Um, Austin Butler. Austin Butler. Yeah, everybody's still like criticizing him. He still sounds like Elvis. He can't stop doing Elvis. Well, man, for two years did nothing but think, breathe, eat Elvis, you know, a voice. So, yeah, there's going to be a time to try to take that out. And I'm sure once he has a role, he'll work so hard on that, all that will go away. But, you know, with Adam, it, it just was sort of a part of him. And I think he loved talking like that to people. You know, it, yeah. was, it had something warm and cozy about it. Yeah. If I was Austin Butler, I would just never let it go. I would just sound like Elvis for the rest of my life because it works for him. It totally yeah. works for him. Yeah. I don't notice it, to be honest. I mean, I I can't hear that. I mean, it's still, it just sounds, because I didn't know him or his well, no, I, I saw him in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and there wasn't anything you know close to that. But he was playing, uh, what's his name, uh, Tex 
text. Yeah. Well, see, yeah. Yeah. My, my daughter, you know, growing up would watch him on the Disney stuff. So I was familiar with who he was yeah. and I was like, huh, he's this beach happy go lucky kid. And I'm like, how's this, you know, cause I was thinking of him younger and I'm like, how's he going to play Elvis? Yeah. And then he was just spot on perfection as Elvis. It was amazing. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I, there was one shot in there that made me go, well, actually it was in the trailer that made me go, I have got to keep doing this rock and roll thing, reaching out to the crowd. There's that one moment um, where he's in front of the crowd of girls and he reaches out and everything slows down. And that just went, Whoa. And that happened. Our first show we did with the uh, Sloss, we went down to East LA and the gang country and we had a crowd of these kids that were pretty much 17, 18, 19 years old. They had not heard the 60s music except at home that their parents and their grandparents played in the house. So they heard it, but they never you know, heard it live. And they it was suddenly like all us old farts were like the Beatles to them, you know, or the Stones. And they were reaching up and grabbing me. One girl pulled me down and kissed me. And this was like our second show, third show. And we were going, holy shit, we've, we've tripped into something here. Um, and we came back a few times and there was knifing, stabbings in front of the place. Girls broke bottles over each other's head. Blood was going up like geysers. And we went, yeah, we're doing rock and roll. You know, <laughs> like these old white guys in there and down in the barrio. But they, they were loving it. And, you know, I knew nothing was going to happen to us. It just was so strange to be kind of thrown into that world down there. It's amazing but that that feeling of the connecting you know with a young audience like that that moment from elvis you know that hit me like a ton of bricks like what a cool thing hell yeah when we started you said you were just got back from the gym so what kind of are you doing like a lot of cardio stuff to get ready for the cardio uh just a lot of stretching because you know i i know i because of my mind training i have all this kind of weird you know, physical things that you know I do you know, spins my my arms. My I go into back bends. Um, just I, I literally after three years I have to get you know back in the you know shape um, yeah. so I don't kill myself up there. Uh, and it is just again like getting ready for a fight. You know, you really just have to work out and the endurance to, to maintain that for forty five minutes to an hour. Um, at my age, particularly, you know, it's like I've got to just make sure that I got it all together. So I'm not by the second, third song going, <laughs> you know, because, you know, you're dancing and singing. And a lot of performers, that's why they, you know, lip sync. Um, if you're doing yeah. a lot of dancing, it's, you know, you get winded. So I, I just, you know, it's going to still be difficult because I can't do the show full out in any kind of rehearsal fashion. There's just no time for that. So I just have to kind of build, you know, up my as much power in the body as I can possibly have. And, you know, once we get, you know, if, if the span happens, we get going. It's easy then because you, you're, you know, totally used to it. Your body's used to it. And right. it's just kind of going, what the fuck are you doing to me? Yeah. But don't forget that adrenaline's going to kick in the second you get on stage. Oh, of course. Yeah. But and then everything the else secondary because <laughs> the adrenaline takes over. Yeah. But that's when you start doing stupid things, um, well, <laughs> you know, jumping up on top of, you know, <laughs> speakers and have them collapse or 
I was at the whiskey one night and I had these dance shoes on and I forgot that I didn't have tennis shoes on. And I leaped out into the crowd and I landed like, bam, flat footed, which you're not supposed to do. And I, you know, seriously twisted my ankle, didn't break it, but it was like, Oh, ouch. And then I went back on and kept performing, you know, again, the adrenaline took away any pain, but as soon as we finished, it was like, ah, you know, <laughs> so I, I had to go to the, you know, one of those, you know, clinics in the morning and get an x-rayed and all that and lived around for a few days. But it, it's that thing that, yeah, once you get into it, you're just crazy. Yeah. I, uh, I, we recently had this, um, ex-Marine on and he's now, uh, um, special forces guy and he runs this war horse athletics on, it's an online program. And I decided to get in shape also. And, like i couldn't even get through the first week of all of his training i did these squats and i also climb ladders for a living like it's just one ladder once a day but i could barely make it up the ladder the next day after i did these yeah. squats like that's how i'm i was like holy shit i probably shouldn't have started training on an, an ex-marines program like, yeah. <laughs> um all right so i want to yeah. go back to uh to the beginning here when you were a kid, your father took you to see Peter Laurie's body, mm-hmm. right? And I have I have the Beast with Five Fingers written down. Um, I'm not sure why I wrote that down. But do you think that maybe that might be sort of why you became a little obsessed with death or at that young age? Because you, you also have a thing now that you, you've been doing recently called the Cemetery Man. If you could talk yeah. a little bit about that, too. Yeah, I don't, you know, I can't really answer what that connection truly is, where it came from exactly. But I know prior to seeing Peter Laurie, part of the reason my dad felt it was okay to do this, because he did this movie, uh, Casbah, uh, with Peter Laurie. So he talked to him and things. So he felt not close, but he felt like, okay, he's gone on and, you know, this is an opportunity to, you know, say goodbye to somebody that he did a movie with and dragged me along because he knew I was into this stuff. Uh, it was all watching those universal horror movies and things I was obsessed with. And of course, you know, all of that stuff, I bring this up all the time about, you know, uh, Jason being so happy in that grave until Tommy goes and brings him back to life. And that's the last thing these people want, you know, you know, Frankenstein says, you know, love dead, hate living, you know, and Dracula, to, you know, to be dead must be glorious. And of course, the Wolfman would love to be <laughs> taken out of his misery. You know, I would guess the mummy too being dragged up. Who the hell wants to get into this when they're nice and peaceful and quiet there? But I just had this fascination with, you know, the other side and um, it's reading Edgar Allan Poe and, and kind of writing my versions of that. There was just that type of, um, I don't know, it's a, it's a strange comfort. And I'm sure all you guys who've you know been in this know there's a kind of a poetic beauty with that. What is out there? You know, what, what, what could be wonderful about it in some way, shape or form? Or just it scares so many people. It's a great thing to use if you're in the, you know, the business of scaring people for a living. Uh, nobody wants to die, nor do I. I'm in no hurry. So the prep I'm doing for, you know, the switch over, I want as much time as possible. But 
the, the, the Peter Laurie thing was just, it was just odd, but I was raised Catholic. I was an altar boy. I attended funerals, you know, all the time where you're, you know, you're sitting there with a, you know, a candle, you know, in your arms and, you know, and there's a dead body in front of you while the priest is you know, praying over it. So that whole kind of thing was not anything that was that freaky. And okay. the, the whole upbringing of hell and heaven and the devil and Jesus, you know, and all the, you know, the angels and the, you know, the pagan babies that are out there. And the, I mean, there was so much stuff in and around that, that what we kids, you know, if you tell us don't do that, that's the first thing we want to do. You know, we want to check out everything that was forbidden. And um, so there was just that natural inclination to kind of want to investigate the dark side. And, I, you know, it was always that one thing kind of led to another, to another, to another. And um, when I finally started making movies, the, uh, you know, the one that I thought would be the most personal to me was One Dark Night because I went into the catacombs in Paris when I was over there studying mine. And that was the first supernatural fear I ever had, where I let the group go ahead of me. I had the tiny little candle, as we all did. And I just kind of stayed in one place while they disappeared and kind of looked around at the bones and the skulls and kind of walked around by myself. And then there was this moment, the old, you know, going up, the, you know, your spine and up and you feel the hairs on the back of your neck. And it's like, okay, where are the, where's the group? And there was nothing to be afraid of. There wasn't anything there were that would harm me, but you just felt this overwhelming sense of a supernatural fear. And, you know, finally found the group and there was a great, you know, uh, relief. And that stayed, that feeling stayed with me. And the combination of that and the psychic stuff I was studying, the two things, you know, came together for what One Dark Night was. And then that kind of started this ball of, you know, Angel coming back to save a guy who's dying, obviously bringing Jason back from the dead. That was an assignment. Can you do that? Yeah. What else you want? You can do whatever you want. So, okay, just got to bring him back. Got to be like Frankenstein as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, sometimes they come back. The next thing, you know, with the, the, the teens coming back, it, it just kind of, you know, one thing after the other kind of was in that realm of, you know, crossing over and bringing something back. Why I have uh, the beast with five fingers written down that that was must have been significant to you also because you you put that I remember there was a line in one dark night about that this is like the Peter Lore Laurie movie uh, the beast with five the fingers gets him. yeah so why, yeah, why was, I'm not sure why I wrote that down but what that was my favorite Peter Laurie mo- movie you know that and it was on TV a lot when I was growing up it must have been cheap to run it, you know, or it's in public domain or something like it's a wonderful life. That's why it's a wonderful life became a hit because they let the copyright go and everybody that had a TV station across America could run. It's a wonderful life for free, which they did. And people started seeing it. And that is how it became kind of the Christmas classic that it is now. It was a huge bomb when, when he did it. Um, and nobody, nobody wanted happiness after <laughs> World War II, they're all dealing with the pains and stuff. But now it's like, you know, certainly still my favorite movie of all time. But the Peter Laurie one, yeah, I, you know, that sort of gave me the chance to work on the voice and, you know, as a kid and, you know, freak out people, you know, come up behind him and, you know, I love you, you know. And you know, so I, you know, I just had a great affinity for him 
before my dad took me to go see him. Um, yeah. And now, you know, my crypt is literally two paces from, you know, his ashes, you know, oh, there wow. in, the, in the cemetery. So we're neighbors. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, uh, uh, Joey Ramon is, is out there. Uh, Johnny Ramon is out there. And um, in that cemetery as well as Didi Ramon and God, I mean, so many people, it's kind of like a very kind of cool place to be staying for eternity, you know, for the long run there. It's like, I'm not, I'm not moving once I get there. That's it. (laughs) I'll come Um, to you, but. (laughs) (laughs) Something else I wanted to talk to talk about, uh, you were directed by John Frankenheimer in the prophecy and, uh, you, you said that you suggested something to him twice. And the second time that you did that, he took you aside and said, don't ever do that in front of everyone again. Um, just yeah. come to me personally. Now you've been a director for, you know, many years now. Um, I'm sure that that has happened to you all right. You know, right. So how, how oh, yeah. did you handle it? How did you handle I, it? I, I kind of handled it the same way John did, except, uh, you know, I, I welcome people to do that. I mean, you know, once I get comfortable with the crew and the cast and everything, and I said, you know, look, look, I'm the director. And yes, anything that goes wrong is my fault. But then anything that goes right is also my fault, you know. And if you give me something good, I will give you full credit for it. Not on the screen, but anybody <laughs> in hearing distance, if you come up with a good idea. I said, you know, I am open to things. And for some reason, people then don't do it. And every so often you get, like I had one time the caterer, I was doing date with an angel. You know, he says, i got a funny idea. And, I, and people were like, shut up. I said, no, 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 no. I want to go hear what the funny idea is. And sure enough, what he told me, I used. And for the rest of the shoot, you know, it's go, where's the man with the great idea? There he is, you know. And he spoiled everybody with the catering and, and things after that. He felt like a hero. So to me, it really was worth, you know, asking. Um, John was like, I think he just thought, you know, I, I was a kid with so much energy and excitement. That he just had to say, well, look, I'm going to use the idea, but, uh, you know, from now on, protocol is to talk to me privately. But I don't think if I did went to, I, you know, John, can I talk to you about something? It's like, what is it? You know, I don't think he would be that open, but I think yeah. it's just being nice uh, about it. Uh, but I, I always believe that, you know, it's a team. It's a family. Why not? Unless it's like absolutely, you know, drives you crazy because somebody's going, oh, I got I, you know, then. I got to ask somebody else, just tell them no, because I've already said it like eight times, Yeah, uh, you know, but it's certain people, certain personality types. Yeah. They, they, if you give them license, they'll drive all over you and other people be very respectful or shy, you know, about, about doing, saying something. Um, but I, I don't know. I, you, you, when you're directing, you know, you are lots of times just looking at the trees as you're going through, you no longer can see the forest because you've got to make this, schedule that day you've got to yeah. get performances you got to do this you hope ha- you hopefully have a producer who's standing back looking at the forest and telling you do you think you really need this and it's like why, why are you saying that you know and if they have a good reason then it's like you're right i probably will cut this in the editing room thank you just saved us some time you know other times you know you don't hear anything you know you just keep shooting stuff and then when you get into the editing room and real it's realize it's three hours long uh nowadays you release it three hours long but back then it had to be 90 minutes 
that's when the bladder tells you go pee 90 minutes, yeah. you know, get out. Um, and as, as we know, it keeps, these keep ballooning, but I would love one day to see some of these three hour versions of stuff that I did way back when and see what, you know, what they look like now. You mentioned date with an angel. So critically that didn't do very well, but at the end of the day, do you say, look, we had nine different screenings of this and everything that I wanted in the movie isn't in the movie anymore. So like, that's not how I wanted the movie to be anyway. So like, fuck your reviews. Well, you know, the problem was more than anything else is when I first started taking that script around, there was no splash. There was no mannequin. There was no ET even. This whole idea of having a fantasy female, in this case, an angel with wings, the only wings I'd ever seen on, you know, that looked like wings was in Barbarella. Uh, that what's his name? John Philip Law, you know, the, the angel that was in that with Jane Fonda, that movie. Those look like real wings and they look great. But uh, and I think they I think they flew, but it was a little bit funky. And I wanted to make an angel that really had wings that looked like they could articulate, that they could express. And at the end, when she takes him, that they envelop, you know. So I thought, you know, this would be something that would be new. I had all the Capra, you know, uh, influence that that came to that. I sent Capra the script, you know, we talked about it. And I every time I got rejected, and then he goes, you know, I got rejected all the time. Just keep going, just keep going. So luckily I had him as a, as a coach. You know, and he even gave us a quote for the movie, which Dino didn't use because he didn't think anybody knew who Frank Capra was. But um, it was a movie that was supposed to be a romantic comedy, you know, fantasy with the comedy was not supposed to be as heavy. And I didn't have rock music from the 80s in there. And so it was a the final thing was a very kind of different tonality than what I intended at the end of the day, do I regret that it has all this 80s music and stuff? No. You know, when we were doing the 80s, nobody thought we were doing any great art or anything. We were making a living, you know. Nobody knew Jason was going to be what he's now and Freddie and all that. It's like most of us were going, geez, they're, they're never going to be like the monsters of Universal. You know, and here we are 30-something years later, and they're probably bigger than ever. And it's a huge generation, you know, I mean, a couple of generations that still follow all these characters who still, I mean, my girlfriend only plays 80s music. That's, you know, her favorite thing. So I've now looked at it, that it has a lot of sort of positive aspects to it. There's still a lot of things, you know, that are silly, gaggy kind of comedy that I probably would have taken out, you know, and substituted with other things. But the nine screenings was Dino terrified because he was just about to go bankrupt. Uh, that, you know, he wanted this to be as much of a hit as possible. Critically, what we got slammed for is by the time I got this thing out, E.T. had come, Splash had come, you know, Vatican, all these other fantasy, you know, female type, you know, roles that that were all kind of ripoffs of Splash. And there was no way people weren't going to go, you know, especially a critic, you know, all he's doing is copying Splash, except he's doing it with an angel, you know, instead of a fishtail. Uh, and that killed me because obviously I wanted to do this years before that and couldn't get it made. So, yeah. um, and the ironic thing about Splash is at that point, Anson Williams, 
from Happy Days, one of the actors on Happy Days, was our line producer on the movie. And so we were taking it around with Anson and me pitching and all this stuff. And then one day he calls me and he goes, I think we need to stop. What do you mean we need to stop? Well, I got a call from Ron Howard and he's like doing this, you know, mermaid movie. And it sounds like it's going to have very similar things. Because it's a mermaid. I mean, you know, Warren Beatty's supposed to remake Mr. Peabody in The Mermaid. He's not got that off the ground. Why do we have to stop? We don't know what it's going to do. Well, of course, he was right. You know, it became a huge hit and big change for Disney, you know, having that kind of a movie under the Disney umbrella. But there's nothing you can do. If you don't get there first, you don't get there first. Uh, The fairy tale movie was the same thing, taking that around and around. Nobody wanted to do a movie about fairies. And just like when I was researching angels, two books on angels I could find, you know, biblical paintings. And um, Billy Graham had a book on angels. That was it. You know, and I was going to all these places that had all, you know, supernatural, occult, religious things. I couldn't find any research. And same thing when we were doing fairies, fairy tales. It was, you know, now it's there's they're all over the place. So it's. Again, it's timing. Either you're ahead of the curve, you know, or you're behind it. Uh, and, you know, you get judged accordingly. Nah. Did you set yourself on fire in this movie? Yeah. Um, I have, you I know have was, that in my notes. Why did you set yourself on fire? Well, it, it was going to cost to do a fire gag. And Phoebe was, you know, obviously in the movie, Phoebe Cates. And her boyfriend, later to be her husband, Kevin Klein, was there. And most incredible man in the world. I mean, adore him as an actor and as a person. And I'm talking to him about this. And he goes, hell, I'll do it. You're kidding me. No, no, I will. Seriously, I will. I'm not, you know, upset about that. I said, you'll just do a cameo of that? Yeah. I go, okay. He said, you know, hopefully, when are you going to shoot it? And even the date. And he said, oh, good, because I've got this movie in England I got to go do. So I'll be gone for this particular amount. But that's you'll have shot this before that. So we're good. Well, of course, our schedule changed. He got delayed. You know, uh, he went off to do a fish called Wanda, (laughs) came back. You know, I had to do the scene because I didn't know who else was going to do it. You know, and I said, well, how was was this fish called Wanda? "Eh, It was good. It was, you know, I had fun. It was good. You know, a couple of six months later, he's got an Oscar. I mean, again, that humility of this guy was incredible. And they're still together, Phoebe and Kevin, which is great. Wow. Damn, man. But, yeah, I mean, I was padded up. I, I, again, as you can see, I'm kind of fearless in certain things. I just somehow, yeah, I'll do this. I, I'm not going to, you know, my father was a fire eater. And what's going to happen? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of, you know, they'll you put ever, me out. Have you ever done the, the fire eating? Just a little. Yeah. Just, you know pack some matches and stuff to kind of, you know, surprise people on dates and whatnot. But no, I didn't do the big torches and things. My brother did. He went into a whole fire act like my dad and he was on the gong show and a couple of other things, you know, doing it. So yeah. Your I brother was. was. More yeah. My, my oh, wow. wow. So mentioning your dad, I have a, I have a little bit about him. So he was a stage performer um, mm-hmm. But you said he was very shy, and yeah. he had. You said he had a stage persona that was completely different when he was doing magic and fire eating. He was someone else. Why do you think that was? Because we we talked to a lot of a lot of actors that we talked to where they they tell us that they were very shy kids, but then yeah, they just get this acting bug and, and like. Did you ever did you ever talk to your dad about that? Like why? 
Not specifically on that, because um, I, I don't know why I didn't think to ask about that. But, you know, when I go back and got to look at some of these old tapes, watching him perform. Um, and this goes with everybody. And I remember way early on when the Stones, you know, were really, really, you know, the most popular thing, past the Beatles and everything. And they're talking to Jagger. And, you know, he was saying how, you know, Jagger... Mick Jagger on stage is not who he is. That's, you know, a performance. That's a character that he does, you know, with all the moves and all that stuff. Obviously he's got to stay in shape and he's not stopped staying in shape. So he could go and do this show in Paris without any problem. But um, this is, again, for all of us, you, you sort of retreat into this other persona that is not you. So it gives you freedom. Um, putting a mask on gives People a lot of freedom, which is why the Jason mask is so popular at Halloween. Put it on. We don't know who you are. You know, you can get away with shit. Um, but yeah, that he, you know, he had a kind of a almost a W.C. Fields type of voice that he was doing when he performed magic and stuff. And then this strange kind of comic character voice that was part of it. Um, that I don't know where he pulled that from, but it just he was a different person, you know, when he did that. And I think that's kind of was what really made him feel free and happy, you know, because he was in that universe. People were laughing, you know, and, you know, he, he gets to get out of his own skin. I always found that interesting because I was like the same way as a kid. I I was a like a pretty shy kid and like an introvert. And then I after high school, I went into pro wrestling and like, <laughs> you're in front of. And I only did it for a couple of years, you know, but you're coming out and it's just you and another guy out there in front of, you know, how, I mean, we weren't wrestling in front of like WrestleMania crowds and stuff, but it was yeah. like maybe 50 or a hundred people, but still it's, you know, I was a different person out there. And it's yeah. just, it's no, always I mean, fascinating. You have to be. And that's yeah. what people love. It's like, you know, you know, here comes the grave digger. Here comes the, you know, <laughs> and they're this character and people love that, you know, and yeah. they don't care if some of it looks like it's staged. You know, at other times it doesn't. It's like, boy, they really got these moves down so well right. that it does look like real fighting. Um, but yeah, there's, it's it's a wonderful sport <laughs> to get yeah. a big kick out. I used to go and see it live, you know, in the downtown sports arena here in Los Angeles. Oh, yeah. Um, so when you're hired to do, uh, you did a lot of television and television movies. So when you're hired to do episodic television, you did some Freddy's Nightmare episodes and Friday the 13th, the series. Do you have any say in the script at all? Or are you given the script and you you have to just direct what's on those papers that you're given? I only did a couple of things like um, Missing. Is that the name of that series? Um, I did one episode. Oh, Without a Trace. I'm sorry, Without a Trace. Um, this is all about missing people. And that was a script that somebody else wrote, but then they kept rewriting it as we were shooting it. So never knew what we were going to be shooting from day to day or where we were going to be shooting it. Um, I didn't like the whole idea that all they cared about was do it in 12 hours, get it done, do the coverage so we can come in and cut it how we want. So I wasn't a huge fan of that. But the Friday the 13th, the uh, first one I did was a script that I really liked and did a little bit of tweaking on it. But basically, it was somebody else's, and I thought it was great. Then I became story editor on the show. So now we were you know, hiring writers. And then I wrote 
you know, two episodes that, you know, that I also directed. So obviously they were still you know, my babies. The Freddy's Nightmares, very interesting because that script was like a half a script. And the other half was just sort of like there was going to be this operation and things that were going to happen, but it wasn't truly scripted. And so I did a lot of improv- improvisation on the, on the set and came up with a lot of crazy ideas that I just kind of told the props or whatever the day before. And they bring, you know, the stuff down and we just kind of do it. And everybody was cool about that because, the, you know, they knew I kind of knew that world. And so it didn't fall into that thing of, you know, no, you can't do this. You can't do that. The TV movies are, uh, in themselves were a different world, you know, um, from the standpoint, you know, CBS had to be okay. NBC, ABC, obviously Lifetime, USA, any of the you know networks that you you know uh, do these for. But usually there was a studio like Sony or somebody else attached that you were also you know trying to please them and you know make all the acts break where they need for the commercials and things for the network stuff. So there was a lot more um, having to stick with the format uh, you know that they wanted or needed you know for their shows. That's one of my questions. How difficult was that for the TV movies? Because if like I watch them on there, a lot of them are on Tubi now. So they're all in one, just one straight shot. But when you were, when you were making them, you had to have, it was like, there was always a climatic scene before the commercial. So how hard was that to do? Is that something that's really difficult? Cause like, do they, I, I guess they tell you when, they, do they give you a specific time as to when the commercial is going to be or, or like, how does that yeah. work? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was this kind of a format that the first commercial came about 20 minutes into the show because the whole idea is hook the audience into this, introduce the characters, introduce the problem, you know, bring it right up to a, a huge first, you know, uh, conflict with these, you know, whatever the force that you're trying to, get past or solve or whatever, you know, that, that conflict. And then, boom, you know, that's going to end. And they have to, we had to time it in such a way, somehow they were aware of when other stations were breaking for commercial and they tried to like do it off. So that everybody wasn't breaking at the same time so that you, you know, people could come back and, and if they jumped to something else, it's like, Oh, it's already going. I, I got to go back you know, to the thing that hasn't started yet. There was all this kind of stuff trying to figure it out. And the horrible thing is, you know, you start and you had this kind of format, you know, the next act might be 15 minutes, then it becomes 10 minute, 12 minute acts, you know, and then like the last act is usually probably seven minutes or something, you know, that gets shorter and shorter. But the thing that was horrible is that we would plan out the shoot based on where, you know, we were going to kind of put these in. And then they would go, oh, we, we now have eight acts, we need eight act breaks. It's like, when did that happen? It's like, well, they want more commercials in now, so <laughs> we got to change it up. So that kind of stuff was was crazy. Or somebody suddenly decided they didn't like a scene and wanted it, you know, recut for some reason. Um, you know, you'd have to go in, and that throws off the timing again. And we're we're in there trying to make things, you know, work timing wise. And if something was now too long, like it went past the twenty minutes. Now we had to go back in and start cutting things down. And my editor, Charles uh, Ornstein, and I had this term, which was uh, frame fucking, you know, because we were doing all this stuff on film. 
So we'd have to go in and pretty much every shot, we would cut a frame, cut a frame, cut a frame, and then time it. You know, have we lost it? Almost, almost. You know, we go back. And yeah, we could sort of get it down by frame fucking, taking a little bit each time out. And if that didn't work, there was a thing called Vera speeding that would speed up the film, but didn't affect the voices. So they weren't going to sound like the chipmunks. And that was another trick, you know, that you had to use if you still couldn't get it down. Because, you know, the, everybody wants to see the movie as it was supposed to be, not like cut out a huge thing or change yeah. the act lengths. And that, yeah, it was a challenge to do it. Wow. One of those movies that I that I watched that we're talking about here, one of those TV movies was Murder of Innocence with Valerie Bertinelli. Um, how difficult was this movie to do? Because at the time, uh, if no one's familiar with it, it was... It was about the first modern mass shooting, uh, school shooting, right? Ma- that happened May twentieth, nineteen eighty-eight. I think the lady's name was Laura, Laura Dane. That did the, did it right? Lori Dan. Lori Dan. Dan. That's the woman. Yeah, in, yeah just outside so, of Chicago. Yeah. So, I mean, how hard was that to? Was that a hard subject to take on at the time? That it's so funny. You should trip up on that one. Yeah, because. If, what got me into doing TV movies is that I did Stephen King's Sometimes They Come Back, and that was going to be a Dino overseas, you know, scope movie. And at the same time, he made a deal with CBS to deliver something that was in the format of a TV movie. And some of the gore, which wasn't a lot, had to be toned down for that. I think we had to take out, you know, the kid's head that gets thrown out of the window and into the <laughs> off the bridge, I think, for the CBS version. But... That was something that made CBS very aware of me. And they came to my, you know, brand new agent when they got signed to CAA from that. And they had this miniseries called, you know, In a Child's Name. And it, Valerie Bertinelli was attached. I didn't even know who Valerie Bertinelli was. I did not watch TV. I was a movie person, pure and simple series and all that stuff. Never meant anything to me. And, uh, you know, they said, well, this is really going to be a big thing. And, you know, and it's like, what is it about? And so somebody taking away, you know, Valerie's sister's baby and stuff. And then some people I talked to and said, there's like 20 of those things already. You know, they're going to do yet another one, you know. So anyway, we did it. It was the highest rated movie that year, which is like 1991. And, you know, we got, you know, Emmy nomination, uh, uh editing nomination, uh, Golden Globe nomination. I mean, so now suddenly I'm this TV director that, or could be, and I could either do uh, Bride of Chucky, which was looming with my agency. Um, and there was one other one that I, I didn't do something with Frank Sinatra um, was in that his, I think his daughter was producing or whatever. But I took the miniseries because I thought, you know, this will be a challenge. This is a big, you know, six, eight hour thing. So because it was successful, you know, it was like, okay, now I'm in that in that world. So I did some other things. uh, Molly Ringwald thing on, you know, women and AIDS. Then nobody had ever thought women could get AIDS at that time. And another one called The Fire Next Time, which is a huge global warming piece. And they kept trying to get me and Valerie back together on something. And this is what they offered us, murder, you know, of innocence. So I start reading the script and I get to this 
place where Valerie's character shoots children. And Valerie gets to the same place. <laughs> she put down the script. I put down the script. You know, we called each other. And it's like, what do you think? It's like, I was really loving it. And then it got to that. And we both had kids. She had Wolfie, you know, and I had two children. And it was like, I can't do this. Well, they campaigned for us for the longest time, you know, trying to get us onto that. But we just felt we couldn't morally do this. And it was also right around the time of the um, McMartin you know, situation and all that, that, that was going on. And it, it just was too much taboo, but there was something that kept haunting me about it. And then I thought, well, the big problem is this. And how could this woman who was a babysitter? And so, I mean, yes, she was off, but that's a huge thing to go off and do that, you know, coming into some school and, and doing this to all these little kids. So I figured out a way to have her not be in her own head and to, to literally when these kids start, when she pulls out a gun and these kids start running, I had set up at the beginning of the movie, this thing where she was teased as a little girl and she always had this reflex that her hand would tighten up. And I thought if these kids were doing this and she, you know, and she kept nervously doing that, that she was shooting, but she really wasn't aiming. She was just shooting, you know, and suddenly it made it all right to me that she was not, maliciously doing this. And when she comes out of it, she realizes what she did and she runs. And of course, you know, it just snowballs from there until she ends up suiciding, you know, in the piece. And when I told it to Valerie, she went, yeah, I think I can do it. And that's why we kind of went into it um, with this fact that I wanted this movie. We didn't have one dissolve. We didn't have any kind of soft cut. Everything was like, bang, bang, bang. My editor won the uh, editing award for the movie. And I mean, we meticulously went through that so that everything was sharp and edgy. Even making a phone call was an act of violence with the number of cuts and stuff. So I'm still to this day, you know, very proud of it. It's, it's like my, you know, as much of a tribute to Martin Scorsese as I could do, you know, the taxi cab, the taxi driver kind of aspect to it. You know, this person doing some horrible thing, but you, we've seen the whole buildup to it and yeah. her laying around with you know raw meat on her as she did uh, the real Lori and I met with her husband and talked you know to him and got quotes from her parents and it was a heartbreaking situation but tragic all the way around um, yeah. and then I did probably the most crazy thing of all I made who's now my ex-wife Nancy the school teacher and my son was the little boy that got shot that's in her arms so I got a lot of emotion in that scene. And, you know, some people said, how could you do that? And I said, because I want to see it and never have to think about it. it's ever going to happen again in any yeah. way. Unless I control that. I can control that. You know, something that I out of my control is scary to me. This wasn't. So, you know, it had so much impact that CBS then became afraid of it because there was a, a senator. Um, I think his name actually was Paul Simon, but, you know, like the singer, but he was a senator and he was coming after everybody that we were destroying the, you know, both the youth of America and people in general, showing them things that they're going to imitate. So CBS got very afraid of this movie that they had to have, that they felt Valerie should be up for, you know, a Golden Globe or Emmy for her performance. And I agree. She, she was amazing. Um, and they put it on Wednesday night and didn't do like any publicity for it. They just, you know, put it, you know, kind of under the rug. 
And that really was painful because it took so long to get it done. Felt very proud of it when we were done because it was very disturbing. And, you know, felt the worst for Valerie because she should have had more people see that thing because she she really incredible performance. Yeah, it really is good. And it really, I'm surprised you see. So you met her parents, the the actual ladies? I didn't didn't meet her parents. No, I got quotes from people. Oh, oh, okay. All right. uh, You know, from her parents directly, certain certain things that weren't, um, you know, actually, you know, like released. You know, at one point, I think she said um, something like, uh, you know, she's had a really hard life. Maybe it's best that she doesn't get out of this. And this is when she's in the school and SWAT was all around, you know, and stuff. And both of her parents did not know what to do with this girl. You know, they first, they thought it was cosmetic. She was, she had a a nose that they thought, Oh, maybe she's self-conscious. So they fixed her nose. They did some other cosmetic thing to her. And she was seeing three psychiatrists. All of them were giving her different drugs for different things. Schizophrenia, um, like whatever it was called, manic depression, which now is called bipolar, all this stuff. And this poor girl was just lost, just friggin' lost. And talking to her husband was the most, you know, terrifying thing to think what that was like living with her and waking up in the middle of the night, she's vacuuming. And it's like, well, yeah, we have guests coming. That's for not for two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. But I want to make sure it's clean. You know, I mean, little things like that got from him was, you know, again, that thing about what happens when you go out there. I was a kid when this movie came out, but it's a shame that that it didn't get the publicity that it should have, like you said, because it does deal with things that a lot of people are dealing with, like the mental, um, you know, her all of her mental issues that she was having. And then her parents, like like you said, they didn't have any idea how to deal with it. And they were pretty much just basically ignoring it. You know, a lot, a lot of it, the way that the, yeah. the way that it was portrayed in the movie anyway. Yeah. And um, it, it was, you know, the fact that I had little Anne Frank growing up, you know, playing the mother. Also, I just loved uh, she's just, you know, such an incredible actress and everybody in there, you know, like the movie I did with Molly Ringwald, um, what they ended up calling it fatal attraction in Europe. No, fatal love in Europe, not attraction, fatal love. And, but we call it something to live for the Alison Gertz story and that working with Martin Landau and Lee Grant. And of course, Molly, I mean, every actor in that was doing it for scale because it was a really important subject. And, you know, actually, you know, we had a scene where uh, Molly puts on a condom under the sheets, but on her boyfriend, because they, you know, at that point, you know, she knows she has AIDS, but she thought she could, you know, at least make it safe for him by doing that. But again, people didn't really understand, you know, uh, AIDS at all. And it was followed with a scene of him in the bathroom, just scrubbing himself so hard, you know, with soap and, and more and more soap. You know, and she's just watching this like he's trying to scrub her off of him. Yeah. So there was just so many heartbreaking things in that piece. Uh, but again, it was one of those things where everybody was there for what the movie was about, you know, and just, again, wonderful performances. I haven't seen that one yet, but I, I did read that 
that you did meet the the real lady in that too, Allison Gertz, right? And she said yeah. to you, like, thank you for telling my story, yeah, this, right? This is my legacy. Yeah. Thank yeah. You. And kiss me full on the mouth. Two months before that, three months before that, and I never in a million years would I kiss somebody that I knew had AIDS. But you finally got educated that there's no way, you know, you're going to get it that way. It's a blood right. thing. And for me, that was an incredible moment because when I thought about how many years of fear and how many people I knew personally that had died and, you know, just it was the curse, you know, um, for the longest time, you know, the gay curse. And then, of course, once women started getting it, it's like, oh, my God, everybody better put a rubber on or two because yeah. it's right. getting very scary. you know. Yeah. Damn, man. All right. So I just have a, a few more things I want to talk to you about. Um, I started I haven't finished it yet i started watching uh leave of absence with brian dennehy tell us yeah. about working with him brian i he's he's a, such a great actor like when i was a kid tommy boy was a, a huge thing a huge deal big tom big tom callahan yeah so uh what was it like working with uh brian dennehy i idolized brian i i mean the one for me that really did it uh was cocoon uh the, the, you know because he can be a great bad guy and he can be a great like just man, you know, like just could kind of cut through everything. It's like, this is the way it's going to be. But Cocoon, he had this wonderful, warm heart. I did believe that he could be alien in that one moment when he pulls down his eye and it <laughs> shines and the way he looks afterwards with this smirk. And Never Cry Wolf, he had a small part in that, if you've ever seen that movie with Carly, uh, Charlie Martin Smith uh, about, you know, studying reindeer in, 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 the, in the winter uh, just everything he did, he always brought something to. And this was a romantic movie that, you know, Polly Bergen had carried around for years that was based on Rex Harrison and shit, I would have to forget who the woman was. But it was two actresses that were well known. And one was dying and he asked the other, his wife, could he spend the rest of the time that that she's dying with her and then come back, you know, and Polly always thought this was a hell of a story. (laughs) And of course, you know, he tries to come back. And this case for the movie, it was Blake Banner was another one that, you know, Blake, like to me, walked on water. She just was another one of those incredible actresses. Was she she the mom? Was she the mom? I have to stop you. Was she the mom in, because I did start the movie. Was she the mom in Arrested Development? Is that who? No, I don't think so. What? No. They, oh, I know. What? Yeah. There was an actress. Uh, her best friend in the movie was in the rest yeah, of the movie. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm blanking on her name and I should know her. Because uh, she's a good actress, too. What? She's right, a, I'm sorry. Yeah. I, sorry I cut you off. <laughs> That's all right. He, and uh, so I, I thought, you know, how's Brian going to be about this? But then I thought, well, this is real. I mean, this is a guy that, you know, that. He's not an actor. That was what, what the story was originally. Then I just made him like an architect and kind of made things a little more, you know, unshow businessy. But Brian was very self-conscious about doing any of the, you know, uh, makeout scenes or whatever, particularly with Jacqueline Bissett. And Jacqueline has been like, you know, uh, one of those, you know, <laughs> What, what do they call them? Not dirty pleasures, you know. The, the thing with you know, I, after I saw Day for Night, 
um, the Truffaut movie, I just fell madly in love with her. So getting a chance to work with her and she was the sweetest, wonderful, most wonderful person. And any of the scenes where he was with her, he was so self-conscious, you know, with his T-shirt and everything, trying to cover things and stuff. So it was very painful in a lot of ways for him. And I was having a great time with having these great actresses. And I basically was shooting it fairly simple because it was a story about characters and not about me doing any kind of, you know, masturbation with the camera. I mean, it's like, you know, get the moments, get them to look right and feel right and stuff. And every so often, you know, Brian would turn to me and he goes, why are you so goddamn happy? And I said, well, because I'm working with you. And he goes, you and fucking Ron Howard, you and Ron Howard. I know everything's great. Every, you know, I said, thank you. I appreciate that comparison. Uh, but yeah, he, he was about to direct himself and uh, he had never done it. And he was nervous about doing it. And I kept finding him kind of coming around, looking at what I was lining up and stuff. And then later when he actually did do it, I came and saw a play that, that he was in, uh, uh, Death of a Salesman, and he was brilliant. And I came backstage and I said, you know, how was directing? He goes, I admire what you did now. You know, I did it. I'm glad I'm back to being an actor. This is what I do. But, again, you know, we ended on such a great, great note. Um, and that whole movie was uh, crazy because the producers were shooting one movie with Lori Laughlin at night and then producing that. And then we were shooting during the day in same town, different cast, sharing the same art director, production designer. I mean, it was nuts, you know, the, the, how we were shooting all this. Um, and then the day that we ended the movie, we were doing, at that point, it was a 26-hour day because we couldn't go another day, you know, so we just kept going from sundown, sun up, to sundown, and kept going. And finally, you know, we got everything. We wrapped, you know, the producers were going, well, this is costing me a fortune, but, you know, I guess it was good that we got through all of it. We leave the set. Two hours later, a tornado came through literally tore the roof off of the building that we were shooting in. So had we stopped and tried to come back the next day, set, everything would have been gone. So it wow. was one of those very strange, you know, situations. Um, I don't know how much it cost us to go over, but certainly to me, it was worth every penny. <laughs> he seen. we've talked about this before on the show. He seems like, like there's certain actors that you can, tell in real life that they're just a nice like person that they're a good human and he seems like yeah. that type of person brian dennehy yeah um so uh let, talk about working with kirk douglas a little bit you, you worked with kirk douglas in uh, the boys or the lies boys tell yeah kirk's like a chapter in a book i mean so many things to talk about with him i i, I don't even know kind of where to start um, obviously, as most people know, I mean, he is a legend, period. You know, he's a movie star with all the trimmings. Uh, you know, Kirk Douglas on the screen, it, it, you can't not look at him. And he has a strength about him and how he does things. And what I learned is that he is obsessed with the lines, how he's going to do something, so much so that, you know, you know, we were all staying in some comfort inn or something 
uh, in San Jose where we were shooting. And I'd get a call pretty much every morning at like 6 a.m. And, you know, Tom, Kirk, what are you doing? Uh, I guess I'm coming over and seeing you. Yes, we'll see you then. Boom, throw clothes on, go down to his hotel room and come in. And there's his wife kind of laying on on the bed that was already made with a bunch of magazines and things that she was tearing out stuff she wants to buy. And Kirk Kirk was pacing, you know, he's been up since four, as as he does. And he says, you know, I've got this idea for the scene today. And I just want to, you know, run it by you, see what you like, what you don't like. You know, you can tell me, I can, you know, be honest. And, you know, but I just want you to, you know, watch what I do. So, you know, I'm reading the other characters. He is doing this thing with every gesture, everything just like very precise, like a stage actor, you know. And, you know, at this point, I'm going to just put the ice, you know, the ice, the glass with the ice down here. And maybe you want to get a different angle for that. I don't know. It's up to you, your director. You know, and he goes through all this stuff like, boop, 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 boop. And you know, what did you think? Yeah, I think it's great. Yeah, but is there anything you don't like? Uh, well, the one thing I think is going to cost us an additional shot. I want that part in there. Well, then we'll do it. You know, <laughs> so, you know, there was no, you know, arguing with Kirk Douglas. So it's like, okay. And I knew no matter what he did, he would be interesting, even though if it was a little, you know, pushed a little actory or whatever, because he still was kind of that old school way of doing things of kind of performing the part more than just, you know, behaving as the character. And we, I would get to the set, you know, and, AD would say, uh, Mr. Douglas wants to see you in his dressing room. I go, okay, because I knew what was coming. And I knock on the door. He would open the door, stark naked. Tom, come on in. <laughs> I need to talk to you. And he'd go over, and I think he put a robe. Yeah, he had people to rub robe finally. Um, and he'd go, you know, well, I know you're busy out there. You're preparing. I just want to go over today's work. I just want to see what you think, you know, how you feel about the scene. And, you know, just get your feedback, you know. Well, sir, we already did that. What are you talking about? This morning in your room, we did it. That was yesterday. We didn't do it today. You're right. So I am so sorry, sir. You're right. Let's go over the scene. Let's. <laughs> and this was pretty much a regular occurrence. I mean, it was a classic. He could sit there and tell you the first time he saw Michael Douglas on stage and everything about it, what he said to him, what Michael said, you know, Past stuff, every detail, working with Kubrick. I mean, you know, I didn't want to shoot. I just wanted to listen, you know, to the man. But short-term memory, there was another issue. And so there was, you know, that. But again, you just rolled with it because, again, it's fucking Kirk Douglas. And he (laughs) wants to do a stunt. And the AD is going, you can't let him do it. And I said, Kirk, they're really concerned about I'm doing the stunt. You better shoot it and you better get it in the one. Yes, sir. You know. So he he was a force. And the one time we were doing a scene where he's laying in the bed and the, the DP kept saying to me, if he could just turn his head just slightly, you know, and you can say, you say this to actors all the time, you know, because you can only get the camera over so far, or you're going to hit a bedpost or something. So, you know, I say, Kirk, uh, they asked me if there's any way you could just can't, you know, turn your body just a little bit. You care more about that goddamn black box than you do about me. I'm not turning. You turn the black box. Yes, sir. <laughs> so, you know, that's kind of the way it goes. Um, and anytime he started to get upset at somebody, I would, my eyes would, you know, peripheral vision would go down. And I would see this fist starting to form. 
Now, should I be afraid of that? Yes. We had to go through two stand-ins for him because the first one, every time Kurt would go in, he'd take off his sunglasses and he had a script to this guy and say, you know, just be here when I, you know, come off. And obviously he was doing, we were doing a long scene. He came off and he comes up to the, you know, back of the uh, stand-in. Where's my script? Where's my uh, sunglasses? Oh, uh, let me see if I can find him. Boom! He cold cocks him. Of course, this guy's like, that's it. I'm off this show. You know, and I said, hey, it was Kurt Douglas. I said, I don't give a fuck who. Yeah. So when the next person comes in, and I said, you know, if you have to staple this shit to your hand, make sure you have it. You know, Kurt, very, very direct about what he likes and what he doesn't. But that's what, just so a few incidences. That's that's amazing. So explain what a stand-in is, though, because I sort of know uh, what it is. But Yeah, you hire a stand-in, and you try to get somebody that's about the same height, hopefully kind of the same color face, you know, so that the, when they stand by when we're doing rehearsals and they watch what the actor they're standing in for does and, you know, seeing where he stands for this moment, where he goes, all that stuff. And then the actor leaves to go do makeup or rest or whatever. And the stand-in now goes to those places so they can light and kind of get a sense of where the light has to hit, in this case, Kurt. Okay. You know, and what he's going to go to next and where the light's going to hit there. Um, and you have to do it with a human, you know. And so these people get paid, you know, not a lot, but it's, you know, a job for a lot of people. It's like, hey, I'm on a movie set all day. I'm, you know, can watch, study, you know, do this this job. So, and if somebody didn't get to the set, you know, quick enough, I would jump in and do the stand in. And I go, no, you're the fucking, get out. I go, no, I'm fine with this. Let's go. Let's shoot. You know, or let's prepare. I'm not waiting for a stand in uh, to show up. And on cheap shows, you had like a number, (laughs) you know, number of actors, but you only have like sometimes three stand ins because they didn't want to pay for, you know, that many people. Gotcha. Man, I wish I knew that was a job. Yeah, it's a job. Damn. I don't think SAG has stepped in on that one yet. They did with the extras. You know, <laughs> now SAG you know, has extras. Last thing I have is um, tell us about Cemetery Man. So you travel around the world and go to different cool cemeteries. Uh, these producers came to me. They knew, obviously, about my band, The Sloss. They'd come to some of the shows, you know, fans of the movie and stuff. And they said, you know, we have this crazy idea for a, a, a show, like a kind of a reality show, but sort of a different spin on it, that we would go to cemeteries all over the world and basically show how people still are connected with the dead in their own different ways. I mean, a lot of cultures, you know, like you know, they have the Day of the Dead with, with the Mexican culture where they celebrate other cultures, there's they literally dig up the body, you know, dress it and have a party and put it back into the grave again and everything else in between. There's hanging coffins in some place in the world where they hang them off the side of a cliff. Other places, they build these amazing mausoleums and, and tombs, you know, to the dead. Um, obviously, Hollywood Forever out here has, you know, an incredible amount of these major uh, stone Things, especially for the Russians, they're very big about putting a picture on there, and you know they they have picnics and things. It's, I mean, it, it, 
culturally, there's all kinds of ways people deal with the loss of somebody. And of course, it's more us feeling this, but there is a real sense of respect and so on that that has to be part of that. So they said, you know, we were thinking because you obviously have this crypt, you obviously plan to be in there one day, you obviously have a plan, what you're preparing for that day once you are in there for your the third act of your so-called life, if you call that life, the afterlife. Um, we thought it would be great that you would host this thing. We would interview different people like, you know, uh, Johnny Ramone's wife, who does these parties every year for, for Johnny at the cemetery, you know, talking about him and obviously seeing where he's buried and a number of different celebrities, as well as just people that have a loved one that did a lot of wonderful things that you would never hear about, except, you know, now the family's bringing out kind of home movies and stuff. And we're kind of spotlighting certain people's lives who were wonderful. And this is how they're being, you know, remembered. And there's kind of a, a little bit of a dark humor for it, but not making fun or anything, just trying not to make it too heavy uh, and gloomy. So they said, let's, you know, we want to do a, um, a, like a promo, like a six minute promo thing. And they shot this thing and right in the middle of uh, COVID, you know, we were out in the cemetery with a drone going over and doing all the stuff. I'm driving this 1929 hearse that's at the place um, and kind of kind of setting up this whole world that, you know, with me and visiting, you know, I'm going to be in search of somebody that did what I want to do if it's ever happened before or, you know, just how other people feel that they've communicated or they're still trying to communicate or whatever, because there's such a relationship with it. But the bottom line is the biggest fear we all have is death. What if we could take some of that away? What if we could kind of, it's painful for us when we lose somebody, but you know, what I have on my uh, cryptstone is to die must be an awfully big adventure, Peter Pan. And that's kind of the way I'm looking at it. I don't know what's going to happen, but wouldn't it be great if it's a great adventure? Wouldn't it be nice to know that there's something actually to look forward to? Don't want to break people's hearts or people to go, fine, great. I'm the guy who's dead. You know, nothing I can do about that. But what I'm trying to set up is something that Houdini attempted to do, but I think he did it in the wrong way. They never went to the same place where he was to do these seances trying to reach him. My thing is that I'm putting a lot of positive energy. Every one of my birthdays in the last 10 years has been spent in front of my crypt with friends, fans, anybody who wants to come. And we talk about our lives. We don't talk about that. We don't talk about afraid of dying, anything. It's what's, what's been going on with you in the last year or so. So it's all very life affirming. And from my belief system, we are filling that area with a lot of very positive things. It's it's this close to a party. I mean, somebody brought a cake once, you know, <laughs> and they set up 13 chairs. I mean, am I crazy? Absolutely. But does it work for me right now when I tell people about it and watch their faces? Are you kidding? It's like, no, I'm not, you know. And I just actually believe that, you know, 30 years ago, what the fuck is that? What are you telling me we can have a, what we're doing right now? Are you fucking kidding me? There's stuff that we can do with this that we have not tapped. To me, the psychic sciences are one of the biggest things we've got. It ain't ghosts, guys. It is not ghosts. It's residual energy that sticks around. And if OJ murdered, they tear that house down because people go in that area and they're 
terrified what they feel. Not everybody, but people who are sensitive. And there's a whole thing about, are you sensitive? You will pick up something audibly, audible, see something, smell something. You know, I go in there and play the harmonica some days. You know, I hope somebody goes, you know, I swear to God, I heard a harmonica. You know, now, are they crazy? Well, they're not going to know I did that, but I'm telling <laughs> certain people I did if that comes back as a report. So it is this, this you know, the show must go on attitude of mine that after I'm gone, I still want things to happen. Um, but am I going to know about it? No. What am I going to get out of it? Right now is what I'm getting out of it, you know, is this this fun of setting all this up. And, hey, if the experiment works, then we've made a step forward in communication, you know, um, in the afterlife. Yeah. I think it's also is the show is the show. Are we going to be able to see the show uh, anytime soon? Uh, I wouldn't say anytime soon because we still haven't had anybody buy the show. You know, oh, we're okay. trying to find, you know, just the whole idea. Show about death, mm, nah, you know, and then people go, well, wait, is it is it depressing? No, it's not depressing. How can it not be depressing? Because we're making it so that it's, you know, the great things that happened in certain people's lives and how we miss them, you know, and what they did. And, you know, but it's still little, you know, like date with an angel, like the fairies, you know, we're, we're you know, unfortunately, you know, the, we, the curve has not happened yet. So we're behind with this thing, I think, because we, we're we running out of places to go for entertainment. You know, we're, there's yeah. so many shows and things. I can't go on, you know, there's so much cable there's anymore. So, it's like, so what much. the fuck should I watch? You know, and people, I, I know. oh, you got to see this. You've got to see, you see the thing on, you know, on, on, on Shudder. There's like 40 things on Shudder I want to see. Yeah. What are you talking about? <laughs> you know? Yeah. So people you know, ask me all the time about if I've seen something and it's like I try to put as much research into this show as I can now. It's like I watched all of Tommy McLaughlin's shows this week uh, and movies this week. I I didn't have time for all the other shit that my friends yeah. are telling me about, you know. So, Tommy, this has been great, man. I'm going to hand it over to Ray. We do a little segment called Real Questions. Okay. So uh, our friend Mark Singer came up with this idea where I ask you one question and you have 60 seconds to answer it. So my answer has to be within 60 seconds. You've got 60 seconds to answer this question, Tommy. And I know you like to think for 59 of those and then answer it quick. No. Hell yeah. You can do whatever you want. All right. (laughs) Okay. So. You were involved with the black hole. You've been involved with Dick Van Dyke. But everyone knows that you are the creator of the TV show. They came from outer space. And I am a huge Dean Cameron fan. Do you think that if he had a better co-star, that show would have went beyond one season? I cannot say that would be the fact. These two guys, I literally cast them because they were a team. They had done uh, some other movie. I think it was a snow ski ski school or something. They did something together and they came in together and they threw the ball back and forth in such a way that it's like, you can't separate these guys. They are like a team. They could finish each other's sentences and things. So I never for a moment, you know, as much as I love Dean's work, you know, Stuart was just amazing too. So 
never even crossed my mind, to be honest. You know, they just, you know, came in and stuffed a, a, a wonderfully zany, wacky, you know, it, it's like, as I said, they could almost finish each other's thoughts. They, they were so tight at that time. Yeah, I, I just think Dean was just so much ahead in his acting ability that it kind of. Stuart well, he had more was, experience. He definitely I mean. had more experience. Yeah. yeah, Stuart just wasn't on his level at that point. So to me, I think if Dean would have had somebody else, I think that show could have went for nine, ten years. I don't know. Well, it was also an incredibly cheap show. If you talk to these guys today, it's like, where's our residuals? Don't look at me. I'm not making anything either, guys. Um, But yeah, the Universal, uh, they had a title called um, uh, It Came From Outer Space. And I said, how about they came from outer space? And two kind of crazy guys some somewhere in the Jim uh, Carey level of comic or Robin Williams, like Mork, uh, mm-hmm. but two of them, you know, that were, they were brothers, but they don't really look alike. I mean, we, we could have done that kind of crazy thing, but we didn't. They just, you know, as I said, they came in as a team and we went, all right, Martin and Lewis, they know what they're doing. They've been doing it for a while. It's like, it's kind of a no brainer, but I don't know if this show could have gone beyond that because it wasn't, Anything that Universal was really behind, they gave us 20 episodes of that and 20 episodes of She-Wolf of London that I did with Mick Garris. And it was sort of like, you know, that's that's what they wanted to do. And that kind of was the end of it. Hmm. So I don't think he's done anything else that we need to talk about, Casey. No, I have one last question All right. <laughs> with that, that I thought somehow Ray was going to wind in there, but he didn't. So. Nope. Have you ever gone an hour and a half uh, in a conversation interview where someone has not asked you about Friday the 13th? Only lawyers. (laughs) Depositions, the divorce with the wife, you know, things like that. Yeah. But anybody that's in the fan category, like you boys, somebody's got to ask something. Or at least what's going on with those other projects that you have now that Crystal Lake is happening and don't you have two scripts one called jason never dies <laughs> and and this you know diary of pamela Voorhees, which obviously you can't do now brother because they're going to be doing that so yeah, yeah i haven't given up on jason never dies yet um so and i can't really talk about what i'm trying to do but at some point you know like anything else in my life i'll keep hitting my head against the wall till either the wall breaks or my head does so <laughs> still going on wikipedia it says american writer known for friday the 13th part six and i know at one time this did not sit well with you um, because you have done so much other things so many other things like we talked about here today um but have you come to terms with that now that a lot of people that that's what you really are recognized for i guess because it was the very thing that at a certain point, I had to take it off my resume because they weren't, you know, if they vetted me uh, and, the sh- you know, some show, you know, uh, some s- network is being sponsored by Target or Sears or Hallmark or whatever, they couldn't look there and see a Friday the 13th. Or, so it's like the agent going, we just need to remove that for a while. The irony of having that be the first and foremost thing, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a shock. But when I look at the movie, you know, on and off over the years, like when they do screenings, you know, like they're going to do in France, 
I just love to sit with an audience and see them laugh, see them, you know, applaud. I mean, it is, and I designed it that way, that it was a interactive movie as the way a lot of those films were in the eighties that we were doing, try to get the crowd to go. So I don't think I did it as much as I wanted to, um, you know, I had a couple of things in one dark night and obviously not with Dave's an angel um, and definitely not with uh, sometimes they come back either. Everything after that was just pretty much movies, but this was more the roller coaster ride movie where things would happen, things that shouldn't be in one of these things that all kind of ended up working. So am I proud of it? Yes. You know, does it fall into the category of a slasher movie? Yes, but I didn't go in to make a flash, slasher movie. I went to make a really, the best movie I could make with an unstoppable killer and a kid that had an agenda and he fucked up. And, you know, now he's got to fix everything. And a girl in him had that Frank Capra rapport, you know, or Howard Hawks or Billy Wilder singing the lines back and forth. So it really contains a lot of the stuff that were my influences. And at the time, I said, well, I'm going to throw everything in it that I know. And, and so, yeah, I, I really no longer have that sense of, uh, yeah, I did a Friday the 13th because <laughs> it's now like doing Frankenstein, you know? Yeah. Um, and if James Whale was doing conventions, how much to get an autograph? It'd be $300. Can I give you a card? You know, I would <laughs> fucking do it. Are you kidding me? You know? So I get why fans, you know, for a lot of these people will spend. Yeah you know, $100,000 or something to have some, you know, I've got this tombstone here and I got his coffin. God knows what those things are worth. But right now I'm putting together a little museum upstairs. Um, and, you know, I'm hoping maybe, you know, have people over and get a chance to see these things live, uh, but they're not going out of my possession quite yet. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, a million dollars, million dollars. I might change my mind. If somebody <laughs> Well, I'm looking. For, I'm still looking forward to the tour of uh, the cem- the Hollywood uh, Cemetery sometime when I get out there to L.A. and and you're available. I, I still yeah, want to do absolutely. that. Um, yeah. So, and we talked to uh, we talked to Tommy Chong a few weeks ago, and he said that uh, we told him about your script for uh, the Cheech and Chong versus uh, Jason, and he's he's he was interested in that. He seemed very interested in that. That's what I've heard. You know, when that thing kind of leaked and kind of went. I guess, sort of viral, I don't think really viral, um, you know, because I brought it up in like a podcast like this and suddenly started hearing people talking about it. And then somebody said, yeah, I heard that they found that funny. And I still think that would have been great. I mean, there's no two oh, ways yeah. about it. It would have just, and unfortunately, people put everything in boxes. And like as I've always said, I'm telling you, this audience smokes the same weed, drops the same acid, <laughs> you know, drinks the same beer, you know, come on, you know, they're going to come and see this. They're going to laugh and they're going to love the Jason kills. The two things are going to work. And, yep. you know, old news. Nah, they're still, <laughs> don't, don't say never, man. There's still a possibility. Those guys are still around uh, and they seem interested. Yep. I, I should. I just should go, go to them and see if, if that's true. Because I'll, I'll start writing like a motherfucker real quick. <laughs> see what you can come up with and involve them in the writing, too. So that. That'd be amazing. Hell yeah. But it's the it's the Friday the 13th thing, guys. I mean, that is so tied up now. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> I went back to Paramount, you know, because I know there's certain rights they still have with the whole things, you know, with the script that I have. And they're like, you know what? 
we don't want to touch that thing with a 10 foot pole. The Friday, it is so convoluted with how many people have the fingers in the pie and all the stuff that is required if you want to do one of those. And that's pretty much all the way down the line, you know, Blumhouse, you know, Warner Brothers, everybody is like, fuck it. And Hmm. basically they're going to do it on TV. And that's how Jason, uh, how Victor Miller and company can get away with this. It's just going to put it, you know, out there on Peacock. And as long as it's not a feature, you know, go overseas, you know, they can do it. So that's what the agreement was there's that there can't be, there's no features. Uh, Okay. I wasn't sure. of. I I have a great feature. Yeah. I got an incredible talking about the, is yeah, it the the yeah. the Pamela? One? Is that the one that you're talking about? No, no, that one I can't do because they're obviously fulfilling that you okay. know, for over a period and probably very similar to certain things I was going to do. But what we had come up with, uh, James Sweet and I, James did uh, Jason Rising, uh, that fan film thing. Some incredible stuff, stuff I really don't want to give away, you know, to somebody and just say, here, you can use this idea because I'm going to try to see if I can take it and turn it into something else. But the Jason never dies one with Jason in the snow, you know, Thanksgiving, you know, with a Catholic girls, teenage girls and a nun and all women, one man, the man and all the crazy stuff. So, I mean, it's not crazy and funny, crazy, but just what can happen, you know, putting it into that situation with a, something that harkens back to my Jason lives as well. So if you're a fan, you go, Oh shit, that's what that meant. So I wanted it to be a fan, you know, favorite again, like as Jason lives has become um, with the things that they seem to really love. And I think they still would, and then give it a whole different look and feeling, but we're not taking it away from that lake. You know, yeah. we might not be able to call it crystal Lake. You know, I was called yeah. obviously forest green back yeah. in the day. I, I don't know if Paramount owns that, but there's a way to do this where it's going to be a Jason movie, but maybe we're not going to be able to say Friday the 13th, you know, Sure. but all these last movies were all Jason went to Manhattan. Jason went to outer space. Jason lives, you know, they yeah. were, you know, Friday 13th was sort of secondary. Uh, right. to all that. So we'll see, yeah. you know, Awesome, man. So other other than the that stuff and the music, is there anything else that, that you have uh, going on that we could look forward to? I, I don't know. That's pretty much where I'm at, uh, other than other scripts that I'm still writing that are horror, um, that I've got to finish, you know, one of these days. Uh, but I spent so much time on the Friday. I spent two years on those Friday things. So I'm, I have to kind of put my focus elsewhere at the moment. And, uh, but I'm not giving up yet on Jason never dies. Awesome, man. Yeah. Don't, don't, All right. don't give up. Thanks, man. <laughs> okay. T- please but, tell uh, yeah. where they can find you. Uh, where you can find me. Uh, I think probably the easiest is, uh, www, uh, Tommy McLaughlin, all lowercase.com. And I think if that doesn't go to the regular site, it goes to my Facebook, I think one or the other. I don't keep up with all that stuff as much as I should because uh, as soon as I get on the computer, the next thing I know I'm on TikTok for three hours. So <laughs> not a good way to spend your time, but wonderful for dopamine, you know, just boop, 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 boop. but um, other than that, yeah, that's kind of it. And uh, 
if you were in some town there where they have conventions, tell them to bring the schmuck in. I would, I love going to conventions and meeting you guys. I mean, it's, it's such a joy that, you know, we were in a comic book store, me, uh, uh, Jason and I was CJ Cram and Tom Matthews all together this past weekend in Houston, Texas. And it was great being in a comic book store and signing things and being with people and doing photos and listening to their stories. And, you know, it, it was, I love that. You know, it's, it's one of the few things that being in this genre can do is that we're all, you know, we're all freaks, you know, one of us, one of us, you know, it's, it's, I love that, that no matter what age, you know, seven year old and 70 year olds you know, all come in and just love Jason. Who knew? Oh, yeah, man. Thank you, Tom. All right. Well, I've got a Mother's Day dinner I got to go to. And unfortunately, my mother passed away. So I have to get a shovel, which I don't have. But I told her every Mother's Day, I will be there, Mom. So I will see you guys soon. I hope. All right, buddy. Thank you. All right. Take care. See you later. Thanks, Tommy. Sure. All All right. All right, time to go pee. Yes, sir. Seeing a few. Yep.